0: Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. In this contributor episode, Bez tells us how a game is exactly like a tree. Tom asks what game mechanic is underutilized, and I answer some questions with Brian and John. Currently have a survey up on the website to get your feedback on the show to see where you'd like it to go in the future. So if you go to the and look in the show notes for the survey, you can answer five questions about the show, and be entered to win a copy of Battlestar Galactica. Now, here's Bez.
1: Hi, I am Bez, and I'd like to talk about how a good game is exactly like a tree. Because they both have lots of systems working. I mean, you've got photosynthesis, this amazing, complex thing that I can't really understand whereby energy gets transformed from the light into a source that the game can contain and it's such a magical thing. Like all the negative feedback loops and the positive feedback loops and all the things that keep your game in check but no one cares about the transportation of the water or the nutrients for the xylem and the flow. And no one really pays enough attention to a system to push the game towards the end. But these systems are so important. And both a tree and the game need to have a successful reproductive system. Whether it's insects, the wind or humans. It's important that these things keep multiplying and propagating themselves if they are to survive. Now, do games really need to multiply and evolve, just like a tree? Well, that's something you could argue. But I'd say that the answer is yes. Evidence shows that games from many years ago do benefit from evolution. The world, the environment change. We have new mutations. Try some new ideas, try some expansions, and the genes mutate, and new ideas and offspring are created. The best, the fittest, will survive the test of time. But whether it's a tree or whether it's a game, fittest isn't just about being fun or being able to eat things or survive. It's about being able to be good at multiplying. Maybe the fittest is a really attractive tree, that humans come to and then the seeds go onto their legs and then they go off and they disperse. Or maybe it's a really attractive box that people are drawn towards because things like that sadly matter. It's all about multiplication, whether that's through asexual reproduction or marketing. And you can only do so much when it comes to seeing your tree grow up you can use supporting structures you can use bits of wood and tie the tree to it so that it stays up straight and you can use supporting mechanisms but eventually these figs will have to be let go you have to emotionally let go you can't be in control of your tree even if you've planted it even if you put the hole into the ground and put the seed in you can't be in control of your game fully even if you are the designer and the developer. You need to let it go where it will go. Eventually, the things you start with, the supporting structures, maybe a cage to keep out animals from eating the seeds, maybe bits from other games that later on you can discard, they will have served their purpose, and eventually the tree will grow as it must. But you will be so blessed as lots of details will grow up that you could never have imagined. A healthy tree, a healthy game has so many emergent complexities in its structure. Look at the branches. You can't perceive how this will grow or where the flowers and leaves will be placed. This is not something that you even should properly be able to understand. And game balancing isn't something that you should even properly be able to understand. If you could understand how to optimally play your game, your game isn't interesting enough for people to play it, for thousands of people to play it for many years to come. There needs to be uncertainty. There needs to be emergencies. And maybe players are analogous to the natural chaos of nature. They're unpredictable. Now, experience can teach us what kind of behaviours might be likely, but there will always be outliers. You can never predict things with certainty. You can never truly understand the details. You might get a bolt of lightning that breaks your tree, and oh my God, it's a disaster. You might get some players and. Nine times the blind tests work perfectly and they understand all the rules but on the tenth time they just don't understand anything and can you allow for that, can you? Now you could have created a um, lightning rod somewhere else or you could have created a rule book that is perfectly able to explain all these things to everyone but is it worth it? I mean You cannot create a homogenous game experience anymore than you could create an identical tree. But would you want to? Would you want everyone to have the same experience? Would you want everyone to see the same tree? Because this diversity is part of the beauty of this. And of course, let's not forget that both games and trees are often a bit brown. But please let that not be so true. I mean, please Let's get some more interesting colours in our dungeon crawlers. It's all about that evolution. Keeping your systems working, even if you don't understand them. Letting the tree multiply. Ensuring there's a successful reproductive system. Making the game the fittest thing it can be for the sake of evolution. And not caring too much about worrying about exactly how the branches will unfold. The literal branches, I mean. So, next time, I'd like to talk about something that's not a tree, but is exactly like a tree. Because just like a tree, and just like everything else, it is exactly like a good game.
2: Welcome, everybody, to the Go Forth and Game podcast. This is Tom Greganis, your host. In this show, I'm going over another big question, big answer. And in the big question, big answer, I will ask a multitude of game designers one single question, and then I'll compile all their answers back and give them back to you. So this time, the question was... What game mechanic do you feel is underutilized? Let's go to the answers. First up, we have Gold Seal Games. They say, maybe route building. No Ticket to Ride has a stranglehold on this mechanism, but perhaps there's some more um, ways it can be used. That's a really interesting answer. Um, Now... Next, we have Dan Lettering from Letterman Games. Dan says he's surprised how few games use a game, an escape room mechanic, and that how few legacy games there are out there. Um, I do know that there are legacy games being worked on. So, Dan, um, that deserts getting filled up. Next is uh, Doug Lewandowski. Doug says uh, set collection, but then no, I'm joking. Um, he says memory games or memory mechanic. He feels is pretty uh, untapped mechanic, even though it's super hated in the game design community. Um, that's an interesting take. Next up is Uh, Ryan, The Inquisitive Meeple. He says, roll and move in hobby games. He said, there has to be a way to make it more gamery. Interesting. Uh, Jamie Stegmar from... Stomart game says a legacy game so there's another legacy game mentioned uh, rob kramer the designer of uh, turbo drift from button shy says he feels that an underutilized uh, mechanic is spatial aspects of a game so using spatial aspects in a game um, that utilize movement or distant costs such as Zulkin, the gears that play with time he'd love to see sp- Space used more in game. So more of a 3D type of situation. Uh, Fairway 3 game says um, they'd like to see a solid hidden movement game um, or solid hidden movement games like Captain Sonar and Spectre Ops are rare and hugely compelling. Uh, They also say that good party games with 8 plus players are uncommon outside of a social deduction situation. Um, and that's probably why code names got such a warm welcome. So next up is Chris Handy of Paco Games fame. He likes um, real time. He says he feels that real time mechanics are underutilized. Next is designer Paul Owen. He says that shared construction between two adjacent players, such as what happens in between two cities or indirect worker placement, as such as in Tarji, um, would be interesting things he'd like to see more of. Squid and Whale of Squid and Whale Games um, would like to see programming in non programming context, i.e., I- making econ- economic decisions in groups instead of step by step. Hmm, that's pretty interesting idea. Uh, Steve Aramini of Circle the Wagons and Tricky Tide says he's not sure if there's a mechanic or if it's just a concept, but there's a lot of potential for designers to explore more games that have no rule book or just a simple set of basic rules, with new rules and depths emerging as the game goes on. He says, I know that Freedom and Freeze has explored this idea lately in Fabled Fruit and in the Fast Forward series. I think it's a cool concept and could go along uh, could go in a lot of new directions. I've not played any of those yet, so I can't speak to that. Uh, Seth Jaffe of Taster Minstrel Game says uh, he tends to think that you really can't wear out a mechanism, and he thinks that very on Rondales might still be ripe such as uh, Noria's which is the new hotness and he says also that leg- legacy games are few and far between um, but those are mostly just campaign games with a twist to amped up investment um, interesting Matt Wolf of uh, Avalanche on Yeti Mountain and Wombat Rescue says again uh, another for hobby games roll and move uh, TCP to the third of the fabulous hair says paper and pencils are not really used in gamery games. Um, and he also says temporary alliances would be interesting from Twitter. Uh, we have John Breaker at known as at Dice Breaker. Uh, he says, I split you choose cake cutting and that fundamentally it's about estimating value and can be used in places similar to auctions. Despite that, we haven't seen it integrated in the same way Auctions can become a part of other larger gaming systems. Tetromino placement um, is one. Ue recent games, have explored how how varied this mechanic can get. Placing and puzzling these shapes is incredibly tactile and rewarding. There's still lots of untapped space there, including non-square grids and novel placement restrictions and incentives. Hmm, interesting. Ah, Look at that. ION winning game designer, Josh Mills. Uh, Josh just won the ION award out at SaltCon this past weekend um, for his and Nat Levin's game, American Steel. Uh, but he says that converting money or resources to points in between rounds in which the player decides whether or not to do that conversion uh, is a neat mechanic that he feels is underutilized. Uh, Michael Fox of the Little Metal Dog Show says less a single untapped mechanism but I think the future lies in combining things in unexpected ways to play. We're, they're developing a co-op worker placement game. He's been working on a dexterity based financial game, hmm, and basically smashing mechanisms together may not always work, but you could get gems out of it, anyways. That's a very interesting and cool idea. I would be very interested in seeing a dexterity based financial game. Uh, Charlie over at Hoop Cap Games says he has two basic answers. Um, both, it's not so much a matter of the mechanic being completely untapped more of that they're always used in the same way. So first off, he says path building Uh, is used very much in pretty much every railroad game. And in Catan, he thinks there's uh, room for more creative uses of this game mechanic outside the obvious themes of railroads and roads. He also says that voting is is used extensively in trader mechanics and in apples to apples style games. Um, He thinks there could be room for more creative uses of voting mechanics. Dr. White's Wits, Dr. Wits, excuse me, says the Rondale is an underutilized mechanic and most recently, the most recent game I've played that's given me the feel of a Rondale's Concordia, but only in how one needs to plan their actions, not the mechanics. Crafting a Rondale is difficult as it seems to be a limited on act, a, lim- a limiter on actions, but this means there's so much potential for innovation and growth left in the Rondale. On... Chris Kirkman, Dice Hate Me, says uh, pretty much the same thing, that he feels the Rondell's an underutilized mechanic, and uh, the Rondell-type windrows in Macau, uh, my favorite Feld game, uh, is something that could be expanded upon. And... Lastly, we have Daniel Solis, uh, whose game Junk Orbit was just released by Renegade Grant Games, and that's a great game. I played several iterations of it, and it's a lot of fun, and it's very unique, too. Um, he says maybe rolling right. He sees it having a potential in bigger games, and he wants to see some kind of Euro worker placement mechanisms on a big dry erase board, partly because it's cheaper to write different symbols than to Bruce 3D custom worker pawns. So there you have it. The answers to the big question. The big question was, as a reminder, what game mechanics do you feel are currently underutilized? We'll be doing the big question, big answer periodically. If you happen to have <clears throat> questions that you'd like to send in um, to use on the big question, big answer, please do so. You can send them to um, goforthingame at gmail.com. You can tweet me on Twitter. My handle's at Tom Gerg. Um, or you can leave a comment on the Go Forth Game blog. That's game at um, dot com. So thank you for joining me, and we'll talk to you next time. And as always, go forth and game.
0: So I'm here with Brian and Sean, and we are going to answer some questions for you. So our first question comes from C.M. Perry, the Bright Hope Futurist. And he asks, how important is version control and how do you stay organized? So, in your board game designs, do you use version control? I guess is the first question.
3: You know, one of the things that I mean, the, the tool that I go to the most is uh, Google Drive for documentation and, you know, from the ideas to the plain text rule book, uh, first cuts of that as well. Um, and, and, with Google Drive right now, it, it stores all the changes to your documents, so I can go back to a notes document if I deleted something or changed something. I might go back and, and 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 to see why. I don't use version control like you would use in the software industry. Um, besides Google Drive, a lot of times, not all the time, but I'll have a design diary that I'll put on uh, Board Game Geek. There's a couple of my designs where you can see from from uh, basic notes like a random ramblings in a notebook down to through, you know, preliminary art to finished product that I get from the game crafter. that is something that I'll be able to, to pitch hopefully to a publisher. Um, so I see some of the the flow of my logic and how a game has evolved over time. Um, and that's kind of how version control works for me.
0: So with, uh, with the Google Drive stuff, you can't, like go back and say like this is version 3. You can just go back step by step. So it's more of a progression and less of a like this is a new thing, this is a new thing, right?
3: Right. You don't get to say what they are. They'll just say on, you know, February 2nd, 2017, you changed this these parts of your document changed. That sort of thing.
0: That's a good history to have. I I don't use Google Drive for most of my stuff, so I don't I don't get that. Sean, how about you?
4: Um yeah, so I do a lot of um production with uh you know, uh, Adobe InDesign and an Adobe illustrator. Um, and so I definitely like to just save copies, um, of my files as I start to evolve it. I mean, I might not be using that software to its full potential, but I think it's pretty important as you, um, as you start to make games to be able to go back and kind of either pull, uh, Assets that you'd created in a previous version back into the game, um, or just be able to check out um, what you've, what kind of changes you've made over time. Um, and in terms of physical prototypes, I like to keep my prototypes intact, uh, honestly, as I move from one version to the next. So uh, it takes a little bit more card sleeves, um, but it's kind of nice to be able to sit back. Um, you know, depending on the type of game, I'm we're designing a lot of card games right now. So um, I like to just keep those, you know, version one, two, three, four, all intact. So that um, for one, it's, it's, it's been kind of fun to try and document that and, and keep them together over time, just as the game evolves to be able to really quickly say this was version six, and here it is as a complete game, we could we could go back and play version six and just check out what it was. So um, no, no, no special tools. Um, like Brian said, we use Google Drive a lot as well, and that's where our, uh, our game design documents live, especially with a collaborative where we're working um, together and uh, from you know, different parts of the continent. Uh, so uh, we can collaborate really easily with that tool. And, and keep track of of as the versions change, what has changed and and who made that change. That's cool. I,
0: I used to keep all my prototypes and then I started running into storage problems and it was keep real games or keep games that aren't even the newest version of the game working on. So I started throwing out prototypes and now it's, it's nice to just throw out the last version and work on the new one and keep moving forward. But um, I was terrible at versioning up until I started working on Plutocracy, which anyone who listens to the show has heard about plenty. But um, I'm now on version 14.7 of that. And I want to say around version 4 is when I started actually keeping track of what version I was on because I was doing drastic changes to the board design every time. So I would say like every new board design is a new major version. And within those, I would have like, this is cards 3.1. This is card version 3.2. I think it started like in the early days when it wasn't that many pieces because my earlier games, I, I didn't really care. It was small stuff with not that many pieces and I also wasn't working on it as long as I've worked on this stuff. So I didn't actually get into many versions. It was, here's the start, here's a prototype and then I would stop working. But with Plutocracy, I started getting to the point where I had so much assets all in one folder that it was getting messy. So I was like, okay, well, this group of stuff was version one, so that can go here and this is version two, so it can go here. And then once I started that, it's actually much easier to work that way. So I've been doing that with my other games too and trying to keep track of things and basically working the same way I was, except throwing a number on every file. So this isn't planets, this is planets version 14.6. Part where it gets tricky is not everything gets updated in every version. So while I'm on version 14.7, I still have to remember to go back to the 14.5 folder for a lot of the assets because they haven't changed. Um, I could duplicate them and keep them in a the folder, but that's a lot of space wasting, and that's also an issue on my computer. So it's it's uh it's tough, but versioning has helped with organization a lot.
3: Yeah, I think that you're going to... It would be interesting to hear what uh, you know a a publisher would say to this question because I'm sure that once you get out of the realm of you know. People like me just kind of messing around in their hobby time, trying to come up with a neat game. When you're at the point where you're sending files to China, some overseas publisher uh, printers, and managing um, you know different versions, you're going to have a, a much more strict view on configuration management to make sure that you know what changes, when it changed, make sure changes are applied to or, or sent off to the to the printer on time, and that there are the right files. Um, that you know it seems like it's a, a much bigger issue once you, you you make it to the big time or in the publishing industry.
0: Oh definitely. as soon as you start dropping thousands of dollars on single decisions like we're gonna print all these files, you you should really make sure those are the right files. <laughs> so file management becomes much more important at least uh, the price of failure goes up.
3: Yeah, my, my misprints from the game crafter are <laughs> nothing compared to you know what 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 that would cost on an actual print run.
4: I'd love to know um, if there are, you know, these sort of stories of published games where the older version of something accidentally went out to print for mass production copies and whether or not the decisions, you know, to make, whether, I mean, in some cases, maybe the game could still work and publisher would have to say, you know, it's not exactly what we wanted, but, uh, but we're going to just go with it because we have thousands of them printed. Um, There must be some kind of horror stories of, of that, or having to redo a whole print run of a certain component. I know, um, the
0: most recent one I can think of is I cannot, oh, pocket ops, pretty sure it's called pocket ops. It's like a, um, a variant of tic-tac-toe by grand gamers guild. Um, but they, they did their whole thing and it was like boxed up and ready to go. And they realized, I think in like the first one off the line run that they got that all the tokens were printed, not up to their specs. So they had to do a whole new print run of their like, um, silkscreen wooden tokens. So they did a whole new thing of those and then just threw a bag in the shipping container with the already packaged game. So the game has the misprinted components and then you also have the right components.
3: You yeah, know, one, uh, I mean, um, Maybe a happy lining to like a mistake getting into a game. uh, I don't know if any of you have uh, Underlings of Underwing?
0: I have not gotten it.
3: The original, you know, prototype of that had a uh, what was supposed to be a rainbow dragon. It's a dragon hatching game. And it ended up being called a rainbow dragon by mistake. Something that she, you know uh, the designer didn't didn't catch. Alicia Volkman didn't catch on the on I guess on the uh, proof proof uh, proof copy. Well, people liked it so much it actually. People demanded it when it actually was picked up by a publisher and went on Kickstarter. the uh, The people spoke and they said, "We want the Rainbow Dragon. You know, it needs to be in the game." and And so they actually made a card, you know, for the Kickstarter backers with the uh, misspelling, because they uh, it was become it became such a kind of a fixture for the game. You know,
0: yeah, it's great when it works out and it can be a a fun, unique thing and it's not a game breaking mistake.
4: <laughs> there's another. Uh, there's another example of of an issue and I'm gonna blank on it too, but it's uh the game is for the birds. Um and it's a designer from Portland. Um and there was an error with um a cat. I believe it was um I think there's a component in the game that is the I think the crow which scares away the birds Uh, but it was originally going to be a cat at one point and so printed on the player or on the actual game board um, it says the cat instead and so you're sort of like what cat what are What cat are they talking about? But again, the community really just sort of loved that little in-joke. And now there's as they're doing a second print run, they're kind of eliminating that mistake. So it actually makes the first print run of the game sort of collectible because of that little error mistake. And so it's kind of neat with small run games and uh, games like that when that happens because it just gives it another storyline to tack on, especially when, like you said, it doesn't uh, affect the gameplay at all besides being a little bit confusing. So short answer to your question, CM, is versioning
0: is super important, but if you mess up, hopefully it's funny and your players like it anyway. This is a bit of a longer one, but I'm going to read it all anyway. So Dustin Dowdle says, I believe playing a game you've designed and playtesting your design are two very different things, though I think there's some crossover. My feeling is that playtesting should have specific and intentional questions about the game, and what is is not working. Playing a game, on the other hand, appears to have more of a general, less Let's see what happens feel or is the game fun general feel to it that lacks some of the intentional testing of true playtesting perhaps i'm wrong and others feel differently my question for you is how do you see playtesting should the word be used loosely or are there some parameters in using the term this is actually something that i've seen talked about online quite a bit and some people have very specific opinions about it i'm i'd say i agree with what dustin says there that play testing. If you're being specific about definitions, should should be looking for specific things, like a stress test, or like does this mechanic work, or even playing the whole game, but specifically looking for like interactions. Whereas just playing, playing is important, and you should play your game, and uh, that's to get more of a general feel of the the game as a whole.
3: I mean, probably a lot has to do with, you know, the game has to feel good. You know, the experience of the game has to be at the forefront. And, you know, even the most balanced game doesn't really matter. If, you know, people don't get that, that feeling, uh, you know, that, that fun factor out of the game. So, I, mean, I, I would say that I'm more probably um, looking at the experience of the game. Are people having fun? and i can always balance stuff you know later and maybe that uh, has something to do with my own inexperience i don't have anything published uh, i'm hopeful for the future though and um you know yeah but, but i definitely see the the, the use of going into a playtest specifically to maybe try some particular strategy to see if a, a behavior is incentivized properly, see if something, make sure something isn't overpowered, um, making sure that there, there is parity in, you know, the different player abilities, player agency. But, you know, the and, and, and when I look at it, I'm usually looking at the experience and and are people having fun with the, with the game. I mean, there, there's probably some unbalanced games out there that are still lots of fun, you know, Uh, depending on the players and the the people at the table
0: i think recently i want to say jr honeycutt said it but maybe it was tc petty the third or maybe it was someone else or maybe lots of people say it but it's not important that a game is balanced it's important that a game feels balanced and part of that is just watching people play it and do they feel like they're having a fair experience with the other players
4: um yeah, I'm a full believer in the uh, your game doesn't need to be balanced; it just needs to feel balanced. But I think that needs to be taken seriously by game designers as not as a cop out, but that uh, you need some pretty serious evidence that it's working really well <laughs> if it isn't completely balanced. Um, so, yeah, in terms of Play playing a game versus playtesting—that's a really great question, and I and and I agree that there is a difference. Um, so we we playtest with a group called Playtest Northwest here in Seattle, and it's a it's a really fantastic uh, organization, uh, just kind of collaborative group of people uh, getting together and then holding events uh, throughout the Seattle area. Um, and it gives you a really good opportunity to play your games with a lot of new people. Um, I like to, I generally speaking when I'm playing, at least if it's players that are new, uh, to us or to our games, I try to play the games with them. Um, at least because we're in a Place where we're sort of halfway between playtesting in some regards and demoing games, and just trying to get um, a better feel for how our be- games are being received. I try to have that experience for the players, where they really just get to play. We're not specifically looking for anything. I like to just kind of sit back and and take notes and uh, observe how the game play experience is unfolding. Um, that said, a lot of times I we do very specific play tests where we're looking at the balance of a certain thing. And, you know, right now we're working on a game called point salad. Uh, We're specifically trying to balance out all of the cards in this game. Um, And so we're specifically doing a lot of targeted play testing to try to break the game, to try to use certain strategies to figure out if they're dominant. And we've been engaged in that with our own, Uh, core group within the collaborative and then also with others who have agreed to kind of help us playtest another game designer friends that we have and when we get together, we do a lot of very targeted playtesting as well. So it's nice to have different venues to be able to do those, those different uh, methods of playing your game. So I'd say we're all in agreement with Dustin that playtesting and playing
0: are different things, but both are important. All right, moving on to our final question from Glenn Flaherty. I've always wondered, and I've asked this of a few people, how do you decide how far to push the component quality of your game? What are the factors to consider, and in what order of importance are those factors? I'd say in general, component quality is more of the publisher question than the designer, although those aren't necessarily different people and you can't have a lot of influence. Um, I'd say component quality really matters in dexterity games where the actual physicality of components changes how the game works. Um, Anything else, good quality components is just making a nice product that is easier to sell. It makes it easier for the marketing to say, this has really nice miniatures or this has amazing art, but besides improvements that make the game easier to use, as far as like, if you use chits instead of shards, it's a lot easier to pick up those pieces if you need to. But I'd say beyond that, it's not necessary to have really high end components. And it comes down to basically a marketing gimmick seems mean, but I mean, you're, you're adding it on to make it look like a beautiful thing, which could Blood Rage work without big, well-sculpted miniatures, sure. Is anyone gonna buy it? maybe so uh your thoughts sean
4: yeah this is this is a really great question because we're um we're both a design collaborative and also um, working towards um, publishing our own games and it's something that we spend a lot of time um trying to research in the best way we know possible but one thing we do do is look at kickstarter um and just trying to get a sense for um games that uh games that are funding a lot. And it does seem that uh, premium components are something that a lot of people are interested in, at least in that venue. Um, But it all comes down to uh, building the right price point for your game when we're talking about distribution and retail as well. Um, Because I think people expect a very high quality product and the bar is getting raised. but people are also very conscious of how much money they're spending, um, as well, but there are certain thresholds, right? So, um, you know, one thing we're struggling with is this, you know, the question of, you know, if you're doing a small card game, can you do it in a tuck box? And that saves you like 30 to 40 percent of the price of the game if it's a small enough number of cards sometimes versus a two piece box. And so that component quality question is sort of like, oh, what's the perceived value of that product if it's in a nicer box? Is that is that going to make a difference? Or you use um, higher quality cards? Um, Kickstarter can sometimes allow you to use stretch goals to kind of get up and get up in component quality and that's something that a lot of a lot of folks do but um it's it's sort of a matter it's it's a tricky question because i know for myself personally i i care about the gameplay um i'm not a huge fan of uh overly complex or uh you know f- fancy components in games honestly the simpler the better because it can have a smaller footprint Uh, obviously I want it to last a long time but uh, if we're being honest with ourselves most hobby gamers are not going to be playing their games like hundreds and hundreds of times Um, so you know even you know marginal component quality will hold up over the number of times that players are uh, likely to use them but uh, there certainly is a market for premium components and it'd be you know we're not uh, we're not publishers but uh, it would be good to kind of get a a sense of that from from publishers
0: and you bring up kickstarter that's like there's a lot of games that do the normal version and then a deluxe version which like you know they do the nicer components like um tasty minstrel does this with everything i'm just looking into i was so close to getting uh orleone in sealed the deluxe edition in a math trade but i did not have nearly enough stuff in there because apparently that's going for over 200 dollars, which is kind of absurd I mean, wooden discs are nice, but you have to put the stickers on yourself.
3: So, I mean, coming at this as, as just really a board game player, an enthusiast, I, I, I think board game quality, the quality of the components can be a huge difference. I don't think Splendor is as big a game as it is, if, if not for those big clunky poker chips. Those make the game awesome. It makes a good game great. Um, Caverna could have done chipboard but no it's wood everything there's you know so there's, there's definitely a market for it and um they can push a game over the edge it's not going to save a bad game but it's going to make a good great good game that much better like you were just talking about the orleans thing um 200 and people are buying these things for absurd amounts of money so must be something good about it
0: i think it actually can save a bad game i think there are I mean, maybe this is a Kickstarter-specific thing, but with miniatures, there are some miniatures games that I have heard are absolutely horrendous games with $100 worth of nice plastic, and people buy it for the plastic. Although, I guess it doesn't actually save the game. People are just buying the sculpts and not playing the game, I imagine.
3: Yeah, I might have bought one of those games. (laughs) That was, that was a lesson I learned, and uh, only once. But yeah, mi- miniatures is probably a different category than, you know, upgraded wood and upgraded things like, like Splendor with the poker chips and whatnot.
0: True, true. I mean, I definitely agree with Splendor. Like, if that... I mean, Splendor, the card quality isn't even that great as far as card quality goes, but those chips just put it over the edge.
3: Yeah, I've sleeved my cards at this point. i played it so many times that they're starting to get a... You know, I'm not the one that sleeve my cards very often, but but Splendor needed it because we, we've we've worn it down a little bit over the years.
4: Yeah, the, yeah, the Orleans example is a great one because it's funny because i i I, having said what i said about component quality not being a big factor to me Orleans is one of my favorite games um and so i actually am in like i'm always on the lookout for like can i get a you know deluxe edition of it because it'd be really nice to have that just because it's a game that i know i'm gonna have for a very long time i'm gonna play it a lot of times so uh that's that's kind of the it's a question about the nature of the industry um and how much staying power games are going to have i think now that there's you know just thousands upon thousands of games that come out every year of course there are going to be more classics every year um but just the top games in the on the bgg list are you know i think a handful of them in the top 10 or ones that have been released in the past few years. And so as that continues to cycle, how many sort of timeless games will we have and and everyone's going to have their own timeless game. And in those cases where those, those five to 10 games in your collection that, that you're really, really drawn to, um, Making sure that the component quality is high is, is important. So, you know, maybe this there's some merit to this ability to give consumers um, a choice in terms of deluxifying or, or not deluxifying their game, depending on how much play they think they're gonna get out of the game, uh, you know, could be could be a thing. True.
0: And there's also the um, the whole aftermarket like uh Meeple Source has tons of upgrade kits for lots of games I've I've bought pretty much everything from them for Scythe, so my Scythe game has wonderful, wonderful components. I hope to get to play it someday, but it looks beautiful. All right, that does it for questions for this episode. Thank you for joining me, guys. And if people want to
3: get in touch with you online, where can they find you? Brian? You can find me on Twitter, at uh, Scrapyard Armory. And also, from time to time, on the Game Crafter chat.
0: And Sean?
4: You can find me at Flatout Games on Twitter.
0: And you can find me on Twitter at BlueCubeBGS. Thanks for listening. That's all for this episode. You can find show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop, like the show on Facebook and join the show's Facebook group to talk about episodes and game design. If you'd like to send in a question, you can email it to questions at the Thanks for listening.
4: Get little on? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> No, I'm here. Okay. Sorry. I just abruptly ended my, you can find me on Twitter and that's all you need to know. I I assumed that's
2: what happened, but wasn't sure.
4: Yeah. I was like, well, that was a long pause, but you know, they're probably just expecting more from me.